Immigration Advocates Network podcast. Hello, and welcome to our podcast interview with Susan Timmons of the American Immigration Lawyers Association. My name is Pat Malone, and I'm Associate Director of the Immigration Advocates Network. We've invited Susan here today to talk to us about working with local AILA chapters in your community, building the relationship, and possibly setting up low bono resources together. Welcome, Susan. Thanks so much, Pat. Thanks for having me. Well, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself and talk about your organization, your role, and your relationship with nonprofit organizations? Okay, sure. So my name is Susan Timmons, and I am the Associate Director of the Practice and Professionalism Center at AILA, which is the American Immigration Lawyers Association. And AILA is the National Bar Association of uh, Immigration Attorneys across the country. We are nearly 13,000 in, in number now, and we are uh, a nonpartisan not-for-profit organization, and we provide uh, continuing legal education for attorneys, publications, uh, professional services, and other sort of consulting expertise, and that's particularly what I work on in the Practice and Professionalism Center, and one of the topics under my portfolio is pro bono. Um, so, AILA has 38 chapters across the United States and even around the world, and in every chapter, I have a, an individual that I work with who is the chapter pro bono liaison. And we have monthly conference calls just so, you know, I stay connected to the field and they stay connected to, uh, you know, national initiatives that we have going on and, and just to provide a really close uh, communication network. Um, each chapter is a little bit different, but, of course, ALA National, one of our big priorities is to encourage our members to provide pro bono services. So we have a few national programs. Uh, called One is called our ALA Military Assistance Program, which provides pro bono services to active duty uh, military men and women and their families. Uh, we also every year celebrate ALA Citizenship Day, which is in the spring, which is an event where we provide free or low-cost assistance to individuals who are ready to file their uh, naturalization application. Um, we have an ALA member pro bono pledge, which encourages members to pledge to um, do 50 hours or more of pro bono services per year, and there's a pretty broad definition of what pro bono services means, which includes things like um, serving on boards and um, mentoring other attorneys, not necessarily just taking on a case um, oneself. And we do that really to encourage our members to get involved in, in a bunch of different uh, ways and, and to always remember to keep pro bono in the forefront of their mind, even when maybe they don't have, you know, time at a, at a particular juncture in their career to take on, you know, a full-fledged, really uh, time-intensive individual case. And then each chapter has their own sort of local programs. And, you know, some chapters have collaboratives with their local immigration court. Um, I've, I've seen some that, that there is a juvenile docket, and so the attorneys will go in and do um, master calendar hearing and individual hearings for a separate uh, juvenile docket. Um, I've seen others where there are sort of, you know, individual bond cases or, or detained cases. Um, 
or or just any other sort of you know particular niche that works for the chapter. There's another chapter that is very far located, very far away from their immigration courts. So instead of having a partnership with their immigration court, they have a partnership with a local law school, and they do a VAWA program, which is the Violence Against Women Act. And so they uh, work with individual clients to provide pro bono services for filing VAWA applications. So the point here is that it really runs the gamut and that the chapters are all different, and they take their pro bono service very seriously, but they... Uh, decide what's going to work best for them. And so when um, people are communicating with them on the nonprofit or organizer side, I would just really encourage them to try to figure out what it is that is important to the chapter and kind of what works for them uh, in their in their particular pro bono program, which I guess uh, sort of answers the second part of your question in, in some sense about how I'm really connected to the nonprofit uh, legal service community in the immigration bar across the country. And my I've been at ALA for seven years, and in that time, I really have, um, well, there was nobody actually in this position before I came, so I came to ALA and really launched and developed our national pro bono program and really sort of have become the face of ALA on pro bono issues. And so I take that really seriously, and I think it's really important to um, be connected to the nonprofits across the country, and so I work really hard to do that. Um, Many of our members are uh, staff attorneys at nonprofits, but certainly not not everyone can afford to be an ALA member, and I think many EN members are, um, are nonprofit, you know, legal attorney staff that many of whom are not ALA members. And so I really feel that it's important for me to be a bridge to that community, which, of course, is why I'm always happy to, um, you know, collaborate with Ian whenever we can do webinars or podcasts together. Um, so I, my goal is really to be a bridge from ALA and from the private bar to the nonprofit legal service provider community. So I, uh, I hope that I can do that. Well, thank you, Susan. I think you do that very well. And we'll talk in a minute about the difference between pro bono and low bono. But right now I want to ask you how someone in the field, you know, whether working at a local nonprofit, uh, doing legal services, or perhaps, you know, organizing or running workshops, how someone in the field could approach a local ALA chapter and how you might facilitate that. Sure. So I always tell people that I think um, a third-party introduction is always great, whether that is from me or from from another individual who who knows the person that you're trying to get in touch with, the contact. Um, just so everyone knows, the pages on ALA's pro bono, uh, the portion of, of our site, which is ALA InfoNet, it's www.ala.org slash pro bono. Those are all public. Uh, public pages that anyone can access. Some of ALA's website is membership-based only, but but these particular pages are not. And under resources to support your efforts, there is a list uh, of the pro bono liaisons in every chapter. So if you want to just check out if there's a pro bono liaison in your area, um, ALA chapters are a little tricky because they cover lots of different uh, geographic regions, so you might have to make sure you, you know which chapter you're looking for. Um, 
but you can either find out who that person is and contact them directly, or I am always happy to make introductions as needed. Um, I always encourage people to meet the person in the attorney's office or another convenient space for them um, because, you know, I think a lot of us know that attorneys are, are very busy and time is money. We have to, you know, bill our hours and work for our clients. So just kind of just really common courtesy in terms of um, making the meeting productive and, and, and brief, but, um, you know, starting to really develop that relationship and then following up on that relationship and staying in touch with that person. And if, you know, if there's an opportunity for that ALA member or other ALA members to volunteer at an event that you're hosting, um, you know, bring them to observe that event, to volunteer at that event. You can make a specific ask if you, you know, have something in mind that you would like for them to do, including developing a, a low bono relationship. But really the base of, of all of the things that we're going to talk about um, is really relationship development. And so really just, you know, reach out, get to know that person, um, you know, find out who they are, what their role is in the chapter, what things they've done in the past, and then really just try to stay in touch with them like you would nurture any relationship um, with a friend or colleague. Well, thank you. Let's talk about the difference then between, you know, asking or inviting an attorney to help on a pro bono basis versus participating or creating a, a low bono relationship or, a, or even a list of attorneys who are willing to offer low bono services? Okay, sure. So when we talk about pro bono legal services, that means that they are um, without any expectation of fee. So sometimes um, there's, a, there's a joke where an ALA attorney might say to me, Oh, Susan, I do a lot of pro bono. Um, my client doesn't pay my bill when I send it every month. But I just kind of chuckle and say to them, well, that's not really pro bono, is it? Because there, there are not two parties that went into that agreement with the same expectation, and that expectation on both sides was that there would be no fee. So um, it's really important to sort of understand that definition from, from the outset. Um, but low bono is a term that has kind of come into popularity uh, that, and it's an option that I like to encourage um, nonprofits to explore with private attorneys because not all attorneys are really in a financial position to offer free services, but they almost universally want to help serve their communities. Um, and, you know, many people... In, the, in those communities, while they may not be, um, you know, excessively wealthy, do have uh, the means to pay attorneys at a lower cost or on a payment plan option. Um, there's, there's an interesting um, tension, I guess, between the private bar and nonprofit service providers. And I think, um, you know, and this goes back to sort of me being that bridge, I think I've been able to see kind of both perspectives of this. But I think a lot of times um, they don't understand one another. So I think that private attorneys don't always um, see that nonprofit legal service providers are required to screen for financial need, for example, and that though all nonprofits do this differently, they are required to prove their nonprofit status on their annual tax forms. 
And similarly, I think nonprofits don't understand that it's an important piece of information to share with the private attorney who you are trying to get, um, you know, on your side and willing to participate in your program or to offer low bono or pro bono services that you are really doing your due diligence to do that financial screening and, and making sure that the clients that you are helping are um, are clients that are really indigent and that clients that you might refer to them as a low bono case um, or as even a regular fee-based case are, are the cases that are the most appropriate for private attorneys to handle. Um, there's also sort of some self-selection that, that happens uh, you know, oftentimes people may have to wait a long time um, to get through sort of the process of having free legal services from a nonprofit service provider. And obviously with a private attorney, that's, that's just not always the case. They won't have wait, waits that are as, as long. So I, I think it's just really important for um, everybody to have a really common understanding of the words that we're talking about, about, you know, pro bono versus low bono, Sliding scale is another um, term that's sometimes used, um, but just really that everybody understands kind of where the other party is coming from and then the terms that, that we're all using. So we're using a universal language. Let's talk a little bit about, you know, how someone might structure a low bono program or create a, you know, a list or a process that is fair and understood by all. I don't imagine it will be productive to, upon a first meeting with an attorney in your community, say, we're making a list, do you want to be on it? It sounds like it's going to be much more of a um, collaborative process. Yeah, I, I think that's really right. Um, I, You know, I think, again, what's most important for all of this is that everybody's on the same page, that there's clear communication, and that whatever the final product that, that everyone who is associated with the list um, or, you know, potentially the ALA chapter and the nonprofit service provider that's creating the list, um, that everybody signs off on, on the final pro- product, right? So I had an experience a couple of years ago where um, there was a, an, a notario, uh, an unauthorized uh, practitioner in the Baltimore, Maryland area whose shop was shut down uh, by law enforcement. And... We were asked, the ALA chapter was asked, and ALA National became involved because of our close proximity to Baltimore to come in and um, help put together a uh, low-cost legal clinic for folks who were really unwitting victims of this notario. And so many of them had outstanding cases, and they had already paid money to somebody to handle their cases, but that person had, um, you know, made made errors or not filed correct forms or anything. So they were really in... Um, you know, precarious and bad situations in terms of their immigration status. And what we ultimately decided to do was that, you know, because many of these people were, um, you know, working class or middle class people that had, you know, funds to pay an attorney were, were not necessarily indigent, so wouldn't necessarily qualify for pro bono legal services at a local nonprofit, but we brought attorneys in that agreed to charge not more than a certain percentage of their normal fee. So I believe in this case it was um, 55%. And so any attorney that uh, agreed to those terms was um, allowed to be on this on this particular referral list. And I've seen other states do that uh, as well. So that's 
you know, that might be an option. Um, the hard thing about this topic is that there's there's not really a clear answer, and it's really different uh, depending on the geographic area and the parties that you're dealing with. So it's really best to just kind of talk through all of these issues and, and again, just really um, be thinking about perspectives that are that are different than your own. I certainly would suggest that any list that's created should be done, you know, very much on the local level. Um, ILA National typically does not get involved with creating referral lists. Um, for example, every summer at our annual conference, we have a nonprofit, um, usually with a nonprofit partner, a pro bono legal clinic that ILA attorneys will come uh, and work on the Saturday of the annual conference. And in a lot of these, several years we've been doing this, um, this I believe will be our fourth year, and every year we've discussed this issue of coming up with referrals because since, you know, the attorneys that might be helping the local client are from all over the country because they've come together for this uh, particular conference, you know, what about when when the attorneys leave and where, you know, where then are those people going to go? And so, We've been really careful about, you know, referring to either back to nonprofit service providers or having the local chapter develop um, whatever list they think is appropriate. Um, but we have not really gotten involved in that, mainly because the local chapter um, knows, I mean, they know the community. They know the resources. They know the expertise of all the attorneys. So, um, you know, I think you could develop a list or not, but um, it's really, it needs to be based on kind of local communication and kind of talking through and, and hashing out these issues together. And how can you advise organizers or people in the community about working with lawyers? In terms of sort of more logistical things, you know, I say all the time to people that pro bono clients, low bono clients, they're exactly the same as any other paying client. Um, the most important thing that an attorney can do and that an organizer should encourage the client to seek out is that the, they have a clear representation agreement in writing that's understood by, by both parties. Um, I think a lot of lawyers don't do this for their pro bono cases, but we think it's really uh, pretty critical to do that because, you know, you have an agreement in, in writing that outlines the scope of the work that outlines the payment, if the payment is going to be zero, that outlines the client's responsibilities, the attorney's responsibilities, uh, and and typically all nonprofit service providers, you know, are very familiar with these agreements. They have their own agreements, but when you're dealing with a private attorney uh, and doing a pro bono case, I think it's also very important for that individual private attorney um, to either use the client agreement that they use for their you know, regular cases, or to develop something that um, that just clearly encapsulates the the scope of the agreement. Yeah, that's right. And I think that can be tricky for paying clients as well, because um, clients and attorneys don't always understand each other. An attorney may define the scope of representation one way, in a way that has no meaning to a client. So let's look, for example, um, you know, at a deferred action for childhood arrivals case, a DACA case. If an attorney agreed to uh, be part of a low bono program and maybe charge, you know, 55% as you did in the Baltimore scenario, 
uh, of their usual fees, you know, what if uh, a case turns out to be more complicated? You know, the attorney may agree to fill out a basic DACA request, but what if it turns out the person has, you know, a criminal history and the representation is going to be much more involved? Yeah, so that happens all the time, and that is the nature of immigration law, right? That we keep, un, you know, uncovering uh, new and different problems, I guess, and challenges with the, the law being so complex. So, you know, this is not an uncommon scenario, but again, this is why it's so important to have a client agreement, even with, when the client is pro bono, because it does define the scope of that work. Um, in the case of DACA, for example, perhaps an attorney will be um, willing to do a low bono case or even a pro bono case for a DACA recipient, but we don't even know yet what the procedure is going to be for renewals, for example. So, you know, that, that attorney may have not made any sort of determination or, or have an understanding about what he or she might charge for a renewal or, you know, any subsequent applications that... Um, an individual who is seeking uh, deferred action uh, for childhood arrivals would would need, you know, in the future. And that's even, you know, subsequent to having a complicated case. Of course, the complicated case issue, you know, that's probably going to come up a little bit more in the beginning. But, I, you know, I mean, it's really all about communication. So if the attorney expresses to the client, like, hey, this turned out to be a lot more complicated, I had, and, and they think about it in terms of the amount of time that they're going to spend on the work, right? So if they had thought about it in terms of being a 10-hour um, pro bono case, but it turns out to be a 40-hour pro bono case, I mean, that's a really significant difference. And it's a really significant difference in the attorney's ability um, you know, to spend time on, on paying cases. So, I mean, it's just important to keep those those things in mind. And, and I think that, you know, sometimes that causes some conflict. And and I would just suggest that instead of allowing it to, to uh, cause conflict, you know, immediately and, and um, you know, becoming defensive immediately or, or you know, getting frustrated with the uh, the person that the, the client was referred to, really it's important to find out what is really behind that um, and, and what it is that they, you know, that they need to sort of be, I guess, in the client's eyes released from or, or what needs to happen to bring that to a favorable resolution, you know, that's beneficial for both parties. So really just, you know, clear communication on, on those issues. Hmm. And in some cases, I know that um, organizers and nonprofits and community-based folks are conducting, you know, DACA workshops or naturalization workshops and recruiting attorneys to volunteer, and that's a chance to build relationships. And it's also, in some cases, a chance for an attorney to meet folks in the community as well. Um, so what about... Sort of troubleshooting possible problems or expectations around, you know, what happens at the workshop. Is it appropriate to hand out business cards, or is the volunteer going to be on a referral list? You know, what are some of the considerations in that situation? Right. Um, so I'm. Every chapter does this a little bit differently. Um, the best examples I have are, are from Ela's. National Citizenship Day uh, that takes place in the spring. So 
in some chapters, well, first of all, in some chapters, they actually will charge a, a low amount for the Citizenship Day event. So instead of it being pro bono, it might be $20. But in a case where it's $20, the application is really filed soup to nuts. Uh, it goes in the, you know, mailing package. It has its, you know, return receipt requested, all of that, um, all of the photos, all of the money order, everything. So that's like the Cadillac kind of version of, of uh, a pro bono legal clinic. Um, but they do charge, you know, a, a nominal amount of money. There are other chapters who really just don't think that they want to charge, you know, that much money, but they may not have completed applications um, at the end, and I think that that happens a lot. Um, in those cases, often people need to be referred for follow-up, and different chapters have different views on this this concept of, of having business cards um, at the event. Uh, some have business cards at, at the checkout table only, so it's not necessarily um, you know, a stack of business cards sitting with the attorney uh, as he's helping the person fill out their DACA application and then realizes it's more complicated and hands them a business card. That's, that's not how we want it to work. Um, so you know, some chapters have them available from all of the volunteers at checkout. Um, some chapters develop these types of uh, pro bono or low bono referral lists. Sometimes they require that uh, um, an ALA member volunteer, other attorney volunteer, require or, um, volunteer a certain number of hours or at a certain number of clinics if, this, if it's an ongoing effort uh, before they are uh, added onto the referral list. Um, so there's a lot of different ways to do this. And it, a lot of people have a lot of opinions. So like m many of the topics that we've discussed today, it really is just about um, you know, clear communication and, and trying to determine what is going to be the, the best uh, solution in that particular community uh, for the nonprofit service provider and the organizer and the private attorney to have a, you know, the most productive relationship possible. Well, thank you, Susan. And before we close the interview, is there anything else you'd like to mention in terms of resources or takeaway points? So I really think the biggest resource is your own internal compassion. This is obviously what brings you to this work. It's the same way it brings private attorneys to this work. I mean, small practice immigration lawyers are, are certainly not exceedingly wealthy. They practice in this area um, definitely for their hearts, not for their wallets. And so I, I really would just encourage you to kind of think outside the box about what is your view of, of who and, and, and what a private attorney uh, is and does. Um, in terms of takeaway points, I, I think that what I would recommend is that if, if an individual wants to make contact with the local ALA chapter, that really in the beginning of that relationship that you express that you're interested in developing um, a lot of different referral streams that, you know, some of them might be pro bono, but that you're also interested in sending their way, you know, fee-based cases um, and low bono referrals if they would be amenable to that. So just really um, not always asking for the, the, the pro bono uh, service in, in every instance, but when it's really, really appropriate and then also, you know, really being there to support them and getting their names out in the communities for other types of cases um, that, you know, bring resources into 
their own law firm so that it's it's all really a community collaborative and partnership and it it works to the advantage of of everyone involved. Thank you so much. This has been Susan Timmons with the American Immigration Lawyers Association and we appreciate your time today. Thanks so much, Pat.